you know how long I went without a mute button on my microphone? So if I coughed you down the line or I'd have to adjust the volume, <laughs> I'm sure you wanted to know. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here across the state of Georgia. The phone number 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Oh my goodness gracious. Last night, y'all. I Look, I don't even want to begin with the candidates because that's not actually the story today. And this helps Bernie Sanders. Uh, CBS News had its Democratic debate last night, and it was terrible. It was it was a really, really bad debate. And it was a bad debate because the moderators were terrible. It was um, so it was a Congressional Black Caucus CBS uh, co-debate. They had a number of people from CNN there. Man, Gail King, she hates Mike Bloomberg's guts. Good gracious. Uh, it, it was impressive, uh, the passive aggressiveness. But that was part of the problem here is uh, the way these debates work, j- just so you understand. Typically, what happens is the media and the various parties and groups are reaching out to each other, trying to uh, come to an agreement on a debate. And so they'll partner. You'll have a political group, and the political group is largely responsible for uh, bringing in the crowd and covering some of the costs. And then you have the media group, and the media group does the staging and production and handles the, the, the moderation and things like that. And behind the scenes, what you do is you have uh, multiple meetings in the run-ups to the debate. The moderators, if it's a group-moderated debate, they're getting together. They're deciding who's going to ask what, what questions are relevant or not. And, you know, they to CBS's credit, they were flexible last night in asking about the coronavirus towards the end of the debate. Uh, but they had a lot of other stuff they wanted to get to. The problem is that they also offer some dumb questions. and They want to try to get some lighthearted moments. But it was also very clear from the debate last night that one of the things CBS wanted to do was generate news. So questions were asked uh, in order to generate news. They wanted to generate sound bites. They weren't just praying. And this is important. And you need to understand the distinction. They weren't just trying to ask candidates their positions on issues and gin up controversy against Bernie Sanders and allow the other candidates to attack him. They had specific issues they wanted to ask in order to try to generate headlines, it seemed. And that's a behind-the-scenes thing. There are producers and directors and executives and editors at CBS News who owe the country, the candidates, and the audience an apology. They did a terrible job. That actually helps Bernie Sanders. At a time where, in fact, Pete Buttigieg and others were able to get some distinct attacks on uh, Bernie Sanders, the major headlines this morning are about how bad the debate was. Democrats are upset about the debate. They are upset about the way it went forward. The Bernie Sanders campaign is pointing out the crowd was deeply hostile to Bernie Sanders. And in fact, tickets were between $1,000 and $3,500 to get into the debate. So people bought their way into the CBS debate. They Each seat had a price tag. Uh, so the people coming were people who had money and means. So naturally, people hostile to Bernie, which what does that say about Bernie Sanders? That uh, people with money and means are bad to him or out to get him. You know, most people in this country, most voters in this country have money and means. There's actually a story out this morning that if Bernie Sanders wants to to actually succeed, he's going to have to expand his pool of voters beyond young people who don't actually vote, and he's not doing it. And he's not going to have a hugely great uh, debate performance in South Carolina, or he's not going to have a hugely great uh, election performance in South Carolina. 
but the moderators of the debate actually did a bad job and they asked bad questions. They, they ran, let the candidates run roughshod over them. They didn't kill microphones. They didn't have buzzers. They didn't do anything. Uh, they, they just did. They, they tried to be polite and about halfway through the debate, they would get really passive aggressive. Uh, they, they would interrupt and say, uh, I realize a minute, 15 seconds isn't long enough to make your point, but it's what we all agreed to and we need to move on. And meanwhile, the candidate is still talking over them. And then they say, no, Senator, we need to move on. Senator, 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 we, we want to go to we want to go to Mr. Bloomberg now. Senator, Senator, we want to go to Mr. And it, it went on like this the entire night. It was so bad. And then at the end of it, Nora O'Donnell actually goes to commercial break and says, we'll be right back. And when she comes back, she says, that's the end of the debate. And they went to more commercials. It was poorly executed. I mean, she's trying to bail on her own debate with a commercial break. I mean, the moderators are the story from last night. It was really a bad debate. It was terribly orchestrated. Stylistically, it was okay. I I personally find the questions of what is your biggest weakness? That is standard one-on-one debate question. You never actually answer what your biggest weakness is. What is your personal motto? Elizabeth Warren, interestingly enough, last night was all upset that Mike Bloomberg told a woman to kill it, uh, referring to her baby in the womb as opposed to she had the audacity to say baby instead of fetus for a Democrat. That's heresy. And then at the end, she got to quote the Bible. She wanted scripture. Matthew 25 is is her personal motto. Man, she's opportunistic. She's like Teresa Tomlinson on the national stage. Goodness gracious. Uh, That woman will say or do anything. But it's very interesting. Elizabeth Warren uh, did not go after Bernie Sanders very hard. He tried to make this. She tried to make the case that he uh, would not be the best because he's he's doesn't have a chance of beating Trump. What's so curious here is basically she took the position that um, that. Bernie Sanders positions are all great. It's Bernie Sanders is the flawed candidate. And so she's trying to ask Democratic voters to go with her, someone less popular than Bernie Sanders within the Democratic Party. That's a very hard thing for Elizabeth Warren to do, and yet she tried to pull it off. Not well, but she certainly went after the candidates. Now, I actually, I, I we've got, I actually have less audio from this debate than any debate we've covered in in the last number of years. And the reason is pretty simple. They talked over each other so much, it was very hard to get a good soundbite of anybody saying anything. And again, all of this helps Bernie Sanders. And I want to begin with the reaction to the debate uh, before that. There's a very telling comment from David Axelrod about Bernie Sanders. As the winds begin to shift... In Sanders' favor, Axelrod realizes it. Bloomberg did not have a good debate performance. Okay, so people are saying Bloomberg had a good debate performance last night. Bloomberg had a good debate performance to the extent that someone who is in a coma is now awake in the hospital. That's that's how Bloomberg's performance improved. It was not good. Uh, his, his jokes fell really, they were just dumb. He needs better joke writers. Seriously, listen to this joke. Uh, yes, she's. Uh, I'm sorry, but unfortunately, she's misinformed on red lighting. You can go back and look at the record. I fought against it before 08, the crisis, during 08, and after that. Red lining is not the problem with the mortgage market, but it was a problem for the communities where it was done, and we stopped that. Let me also say, because it just uh, since, since I have the floor for a second, that I really am surprised that all of these, uh, my fellow uh, uh, 
um, contestants up here, I guess would be the right word for it, <laughs> given nobody pays attention to the clock. Uh, I'm surprised they show up because I would have thought after I did such a good job in beating them last week that they'd be a little bit afraid to do that. Can I let me just say, when you're talking about affordable housing, we created 175,000 units of affordable housing in New York. Bloomberg told a funny, oh, good gracious. You want to know how I know that uh, the winds are blowing decisively in Bernie Sanders' favor? Listen to this from David Axelrod. The, the Republicans and Donald Trump are going to make this same case against any Democratic candidate, but it's easier to make when that Democratic candidate embraces the title of socialist and right. doesn't refute it. And the truth of the matter is, Bernie Sanders is not a socialist. I mean, if you look it up in the dictionary, he's not calling for, you know, the, oh, the, uh, right. the so, yeah. society to own the means of production and all of that stuff. And why he is so reluctant to make that point and why is he, why he the, he is like a fortress andrew but not on that question tonight no, on that, that question that he looked he unmoored like... and while it shouldn't necessarily be the most important question they will make it the most important question <laughs> it, it, it hasn't dawned and listen by the way i, I know and like david oxford he's a very nice guy uh, i've been to his house uh, and uh, he's he's a nice guy. He is a very committed partisan Democrat. He is worried about the leftward drift of the Democratic Party, and and for him to to essentially take the position that that, that Sanders really isn't as 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 far to the left as people are trying to paint him. That's that's spin and damage control. No, Sanders really is that far to the left, and that's why Sanders can't do the things that the Democrats want him to do. That's why Sanders can't bring himself to denounce a guy like Fidel Castro. He's got to, on one side of his mouth, condemn him, but on the other side, praise him. That's the problem. He, he Bernie Sanders is who he has always been. A man who honeymooned in the Soviet Union, a man who was praised by Soviet commissars, a man who has uh, taken the side of every communist dictator against the United States. And you know what? They had a hard time going after him on stage last night with that. They had a, a hard time on stage last night leveling any attacks on him. Pete Buttigieg probably landed more blows on Bernie Sanders than the rest of them, and Buttigieg is having a hard time. Here's Buttigieg on the debate stage last night. It was 30, then it was 17. It's an incredible shrinking price tag. Uh, at some point has said is it, it is unknowable to even see what the price tag would be. Now there are new numbers going. I'll tell you exactly what it adds up to. It adds up to four more years of Donald Trump, Kevin McCarthy as Speaker of the House, and the inability to get the Senate into Democratic hands. The time has come for us to stop acting like the presidency is the only office that matters. Not only is this a way to get Donald Trump reelected, we got a House to worry about. We got a Senate to worry about. And this is this is really important. Look, Hello. if you want to keep the House in Democratic hands, you might want to check with the people who actually turned the House blue. 40 Democrats who are not running on your platform. They are running away from your platform as fast as they possibly can. Vice I want to send those Democrats back to the Vice United President States Biden. House. Let's Wait, listen to them when they say that they don't want to be out there okay. defending Thank Senator Sanders. Okay. Thank you, Mayor you, you get a sense of the moderators there, too. Vice President Biden, Vice President Biden, Vice President Biden. I mean, the, 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 terrible, terrible moderation. Terrible moderation.
but Buttigieg landed some blows. I'll tell you one other blow that was landed was actually by Mike Bloomberg against Sanders. Mayor Bloomberg. Senator. By the way, Mayor pause, Bloomberg pause, pause, pause. Hear the crowd cheering every time they go to Bloomberg. This has allowed the Sanders campaign today. The crowd actually helped Bernie Sanders because Sanders is pointing out that the crowd was so pro Mike Bloomberg, a man who is not even on the ballot in South Carolina. Clearly, Bloomberg, in some capacity, had to have been able to stack the crowd. And the crowd tickets were $1,500 to $3,500. So clearly, someone with money had to help people get in. And they're starting to ask questions this morning. Did Bloomberg pay people to be there? On to that. Do you think Senator Sanders' economy would be better for America than I, President I Trump? I think that uh, Donald Trump thinks it would be better if he's president. I do not think so. Vladimir Putin thinks that Donald Trump is, should be president of the United States. And that's why Russia is helping you get oh, elected so you'll lose to him. Hear the crowd? Hear the crowd? I... Let me tell Mr. Putin... Okay, I'm not a good friend of President Xi of China. I think President Xi is an authoritarian leader. And let me tell Mr. Putin, who interfered in the 2016 election, try to bring Americans against Americans. Hey, Mr. Putin, if I'm president of the United States, trust me, you're not going to interfere in any more American elections. Uh, yeah. Look. The crowd loved Bloomberg's point, but again, that allows Bernie Sanders to say the crowd was bought and paid for by him. Well, I got to say the feedback from uh, people watching the debate last night. And again, I want to walk through uh, audio for the, I've got less audio from this debate than from uh, pretty much any other debate we've done. Uh, part of it was, I wanted to save my call screener producers liver uh, at the same time in his mind, I guess uh, at the same time, there just wasn't a lot there because the, it was just such a poorly controlled and orchestrated debate there weren't a ton of good things there because everyone was talking over everyone everyone was yelling it was very very hard there was one controversy last night over whether or not uh, amy klobuchar of minnesota used the f word on stage uh and it, it actually it probably was her saying margaret but it sounded otherwise uh he, as she was was exasperated by the moderators interrupting uh, there are a number of people from Minnesota saying uh, people from Minnesota don't use that word. It must have been Margaret. I don't know. It's like, remember that Internet meme of whether the dress was blue or the dress was white? It's kind of that with the audio. Is it the F word or is it the is it her saying someone's name? Oh, the debate was actually I mean, it really was bad. And I feel certain. I mean, Nora O'Donnell, uh, Major Garrett, uh, Margaret Brennan. These are good journalists. But that debate was moderated so terribly and it was produced so badly by CBS. Now, when we come back, let's break down the individual candidates. I'm sure you wanted to know if Elizabeth Warren went after Bloomberg again. Oh, yes. Yes, she did. I haven't figured out what recipe I'm sending out, but I guess I ought to. Y'all... Uh, just we will get into the candidates, I promise. Uh, but one housekeeping note, you may see people with a with a gray smudge on their forehead today. It's not actually a smudge. It's Ash Wednesday. Uh, please be respectful of of our our Christian brethren who celebrate Ash Wednesday. So I'm I'm in I grew up Southern Baptist. And I'm now in the PCA. Uh, the, we, we're we're the fun Presbyterians, as in fundamentalists. <laughs> we're we're real fun. Um, we're, we're, we're the non-heretical denomination of, of Presbyterians. I'll put it to you that way. 
<laughs> there are a few others. You know, I mean, for all the all the Baptists who decide we're going to be Southern Baptists, but we're going to be mad at the First Baptist Church, so we're going to go start the Second Baptist Church, and then half that congregation gets hacked off at the other, so they go start the Third Baptist Church. Uh, it, it, we, we Presbyterians, we just go start up our own denominations. We got the ARP, the OPC, the EPC, the PCA, the PCUSA. Meanwhile, the Southern Baptists got the Southern Baptists. <laughs> <laughs> and they all get together for a family reunion once a year and fight. We don't do that in the PCA so much. We all get along now because, <laughs> but, but, but we do celebrate Lent. Uh, Presbyterians do celebrate Lent and Ash Wednesday. Uh, and our ritual is not actually to go to church. Like I won't go to church today and, and get a, a cross from, from Ash from last year's Palm Sunday branches. Uh, on my forehead. And instead, the way that uh, we in the PCA and Presbyterians worldwide celebrate Lent and Ash Wednesday is we offer to carry the sinful burdens of our Southern Baptist brother, and particularly if they've got a good liquor cabinet, we will take that for the next 40 days just to spare them the temptation in in this Lenten season. Uh, we, we don't do the whole cross thing. We'll just, we'll take our Baptist brethren's bourbon for them just to, just to keep them safe, keep, keep them out of purgatory and, and Sin in hell. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 honest to goodness, um, there was a while there when I, I made the mistake, and I say this every year on Ash Wednesday now, largely because years ago I made the mistake of I, I did not grow up with a bunch of Catholic friends and had a friend of mine who had a had the cross drawn on his forehead on Ash Wednesday. I said, dude, you got something on your forehead, and he's like, yeah, it's a, it's supposed to be a cross. It's like, oh, I had no idea. And then I was on, uh, this was before I was on TV. And I got on CNN. And I remember the first Ash Wednesday I was on CNN, uh, a lady in the studio uh, commented on someone having a smudge on their forehead. And I was like, ah, don't do what I did. That's that's not actually a, I mean, it looks like a smudge, but it's actually not a smudge. Uh, so, so don't do that today. The other thing I got to say, because I got to get my driver's license renewed. You know, I, I forgot to get my uh, carry permit renewed. Now, it's been so long. It's been a year now. I didn't even realize it was expired. Oops. Um, I wasn't carrying, though, I promise. Um, but I so now I got to go through the whole process again. And now I'm thinking my driver's license expires in June. I got to go through the process of getting it renewed. And, and you used to be able to get online and do that. And now you can't because of the freaking real ID stuff. Y'all, this is ridiculous. In October, starting in October of this year, you will not be able to go through an airport in the United States of America unless you have a real ID compliant photo ID passport or driver's license and typically driver's license. So if you show up and you've got your state driver's license and it is not real ID compliant, you're in trouble. The real ID is a uh, uniform federal government protocol they came up with after 9-11. Uh, a lot of people fought it for having a standardized ID across the states. They thought that was an invasion of privacy, but they got overruled by the feds. And now if you want to get your driver's license renewed, you got to go in, you got to have your, your passport with you or a birth certificate. You've got to have your social security card or, or uh, something with your social security number on it, a W-2 or a paycheck stub. Then you've got to have a, a utility bill or something. You got to have proof of address and you got to have proof of ID. You got to have proof of Georgia residency. Uh, you got to have all these things. It is a bureaucratic hassle just to get your freaking driver's license renewed. 
And George is not alone in this. It's other states. And don't blame Brian Kemp. This this predated him. This is not a Brian Kemp thing. I, I, I mentioned this this morning, and people were blowing me up. Well, you voted for the governor. Well, I, yeah, I voted for the last two governors, too, and, and it was actually not even them. It was done uh, well before that, putting all this stuff in place. Uh, but it's so annoying. I just need a driver's license. All right, when we come back candidates by candidates how all the candidates on the debate stage in charleston did last night all right how about we walk through the candidates so we can move on from the debate by the way uh in the third hour chris burns from dynamic money is going to join me to talk about uh what's happening with the stock market and the coronavirus Uh, and then in the next hour we're going to actually and this was part of the democratic discussion last night uh, what to do about prescription drugs and pharmaceuticals and stuff. Uh, John Conradi is going to be with me. Uh, Chuck Schumer, uh, not Chuck Schumer, I'm sorry, Chuck Grassley has a uh, plan for prescription drugs, and he wants to come <clears throat> tell you guys about it. There are a couple of plans floating on the Republican side, and I'm trying to let them all come on and, and educate all of us about the the competing plans. It is very interesting, I thought, that one of the, the standout moments uh, is the Democrats attacking the pharmaceutical industry at a time they're also attacking the president for uh, the coronavirus and not doing enough about the coronavirus. And it's the Democrats actually are the ones who want to completely scuttle the American pharmaceutical industry that's going to find the cure. They keep talking about government-funded research, and government-funded research is all well and good, but it's actually private private pharmaceutical companies, by and large, that are doing the work on the research for the coronavirus. And here come the Democrats saying, no, no, get rid of those companies. That is not going to be a good thing for the Democrats. Now, to the performance, let us begin with Bernie Sanders. He and Pete Buttigieg had several fiery exchanges. I played some of them earlier. Here's another one. In Senate races, if people in those races have to explain why the nominee of the Democratic Party is telling people to look at the bright side of the Castro regime, Thank we've you. got to be a lot smarter about this right. and Sen- look. Senator Sanders, okay. Senator Sanders, your response. Uh, let us be clear. Do we think health care for all, Pete, is some kind of radical communist idea. Do well, we think raising talk about the minimum no, wage to I'm a living to wage? To the question Do we think building really the millions of this units really of affordable housing no, if, if that we need? That Do we think question, raising taxes on billionaires is a radical let's, idea? Let's talk about what's radical about that plan. Senator, is a radical Senator, idea. The things you just named The truth is that the American people support my agenda that is why I am beating Trump in virtually every poll that has done and Bridget why Bridget I will defeat him. We got to open this up. Right. Universal health care first. See what I mean about the moderators? I mean, that's just horrible. It's just horrible. But notice what Sanders does. Jonathan Last at the Bulwark actually pointed this out. A great guy, Jonathan. And he, he pointed out that... Sanders runs debates through dominance. And what he does is he tries to talk ever over everyone and shout everybody down on stage. And do you really think he's going to be able to do that against Donald Trump? You're going to have these two New Yorkers uh, yelling at each other on the stage. 
And Sanders, of course, he claims to be from Vermont now, but he's actually from New York. Uh, you're going to have these two New Yorkers yelling at each other on the Democratic debate, Sarah, on, on the general election debate stage. And it's going to go poorly for Sanders because Trump actually gets the showmanship in a way that Sanders says, and, you know, by the way, that's something I, I, I thought about last night. A random aside, and we'll get to Bloomberg in, in depth here in a minute. But it, Bloomberg may be a very successful billionaire, but he's really bad at the showmanship of politics. And increasingly today, getting elected is all about showmanship. And uh, that matters. And Bloomberg was really terrible on stage. But but to Bernie, nobody could throw him off last night because he, he, he held his own on this debate stage. There was so much willingness to go after other people on the debate stage and, and fire other people. And uh, Joe Biden wanted to shine on the debate stage uh, to to prove to South Carolina that he could win. And he, had, he Biden actually did well, but nobody could take off Bernie. Nobody could take one more Bernie Sanders clip for you. We have a criminal justice system today that is not only broken, it is racist got more people in jail than any other country on earth, including China. And one of the reasons for that is a horrific war on drugs. So I do believe that on day one, we will change the Federal Controlled Substance Act, which, if you can believe it, now equates heroin with marijuana. That's insane. We're going to take marijuana out of that and effectively legalize marijuana in every state in the country. What we are also going to do is move to expunge the records of those people who are arrested for possession of marijuana. And I'll tell you what else we're going to do. We're going to provide help to the African-American, Latino, Native American community to start businesses to sell legal marijuana rather than let a few corporations control the legalized marijuana market. Wait. Did Bernie Sanders just say he wants to help black people sell drugs? He did. <laughs> Bernie Sanders, you just heard Bernie Sanders say this. Wait, wait, let's get back to this. Can I do this? We have a criminal justice to do. We're going to provide help to the African-American, Latino, Native American community <laughs> to start businesses to sell legal marijuana rather than let a few corporations control the legalized marijuana market. There you go. We're going to let, let black and Hispanic Americans be drug dealers <laughs> and Native Americans. Let's not forget the Native Americans. That's that's Bernie Sanders' plan. Instead of corporations being drug dealers, we're going to let them be the legal drug dealers. <laughs> wow. Wow. Oh, Bernie. God bless Bernie. <laughs> okay. I'm sorry. Oh, wow. I can't. But well, I mean, I, I get what he what, what he meant. But oh, come on. Come on. Wow. Uh, talk about pandering to a crowd there. The crowd that hated his guts. <laughs> We're. We're going to let, we're going to let, we're going to help black people, Hispanic people, and Native American people open drug dealing businesses instead of letting corporations be the drug dealers. Wow. Then there's Joe Biden. I'm the only one on this stage that actually got anything done on health care. Okay. I'm the guy that 
president turned to him and said, go get the votes for Obamacare. And I noticed what everybody's talking about is the plan that I first introduced. That is to go and add to Obamacare, provide a public option, a Medicare-like option. It cost a, and increased the subsidies. It cost a lot of money. It cost $750 billion over 10 years. But I pay for it by making sure that Mike and other people pay at the same tax rate their secretary pays at. That's how we get it paid, number one. Number two, you know, the, from the moment from the moment we passed that signature legislation, Mike called it a disgrace, number one. Number two, Trump decided to get rid of it. And number three, my friends here came up with another plan. But they don't tell you. When you ask Bernie how much it cost, the last time yeah. he said that, I think it was on your show, he said, we'll find out. We'll find out, how, or something to that effect. It cost over $35 trillion bucks. Right. Let's get real. So that was Biden in his defense of the Obama agenda, something that he's uh, done a lot in South Carolina. You know, Biden has been attacking Bernie Sanders in South Carolina for contemplating running against uh, Barack Obama. It's probably left a mark. Uh, he, he Biden had a good debate performance last night. What he needed to do to secure first place in South Carolina. The problem with that is, so we've got polling out of Texas now. Uh, PPP, not a, not a, they are a Democratic pollster and they try to do a good job in Democratic polls. Otherwise, they're, they're polling trolls. Uh, they do crazy polls trying to make Republicans look bad. But in the Democratic primary, they're trying to get it right in Texas. And they actually show that Mike Bloomberg is hurting Joe Biden and that Biden could beat Bernie Sanders, but with Bloomberg and Biden in the race, Sanders is winning. And I suspect that's going to be the coming attack on on Bloomberg is that it's actually Bloomberg who is hurting the other people in the race. Uh, one more from Biden. This is a bizarre moment for him. Why should anyone have faith that you're the one who can get this done now? Because I'm the only one that ever got it done. Nationally, I beat the NRA twice. I got assault weapons banned. I got magazines that could not hold more than 10 rounds in them. I got them eliminated, except we had a thing called an election with hanging chads in Florida, and it was not reauthorized. In addition to that, I passed the Brady Bill with waiting periods. I led that fight. But my friend and my right and others have, in fact, also given to the gun manufacturers absolute immunity. Imagine if I stood here and said we give immunity to drug companies, we give immunity to tobacco companies. That has caused carnage on our streets. 150 million people have been killed since 2007 when Bernie voted to exempt the gun manufacturers from liability. More than all the wars, including Vietnam, from that point on. Carnage on our street. And I want to tell you, if I'm elected and I'm coming for you and gun manufacturers, I'm going to take you on and I'm going to beat you. I'm the only one who's done it. All righty. Well, Joe believes that half of Americans have been killed by guns. So we got Bernie Sanders who wants to uh, let uh, black people be drug dealers legally and Hispanic people and Native Americans, and we've got Joe Biden who believes that half of America has died at the hands of guns. Things the and these are the these are the big front runners in South Carolina now. Uh, Biden uh, again, to his credit, Biden actually did well, and he held his own for South Carolina. And if Bloomberg wasn't there, he would be doing better. Here again, here here's the data here. Uh, this is from uh, 1,045 likely Democratic primary voters commissioned by Progress Texas with PPP polling. It, it is a uh, phone and text 
They texted people uh, on February 24th and 25th. Uh, margin of error of 3%. Bloomberg will be on the ballot on Super Tuesday. We wanted to see how his appearance impacts the race, so we asked voters their preference with and without Bloomberg. We tested approval disapproval on 10 issues. With Bloomberg on the Texas ballot, it's Bernie 24, Biden 24, Bloomberg 17. Without Biden on the uh, without Bloomberg on the Texas ballot, it's Biden 31, Bernie 25, Warren 17. The Bloomberg's emergence has the biggest impact on Biden in Texas. The rest of his support is spread out among Warren and Klobuchar, and Steyer goes from uh, 1% to 3%. Texas approval-disapproval ratings. Uh, Bloomberg, it is 41 approved, 39 disapproved. With Bernie, it's, it's 60 approved, 27 disapproved. Biden, 64 approved, 18 disapproved. Warren, 66 approved, 19 disapproved. What's interesting there with Warren is that her approval is higher than the others, but people aren't voting for her. And Bloomberg's negatives are really high considering how much he's been up on the polls. Now, among younger voters, it's Bernie, 42, Warren, 21, Biden, 11. Texas voters age 46 and up are divided evenly between Biden, Bernie, Bloomberg, and Warren. Second choices, Warren is the most popular second choice, followed by Biden and Bernie. Among Latinos, it, it is Bernie 27, Biden 23, Bloomberg 22. Among African Americans, Biden 39, Bernie 21, Bloomberg is 39 as well. So Bloomberg taking votes from Biden in Texas among black voters is dragging uh, Biden into a tie with Sanders. And that's not good. I, I guarantee you that very, very shortly, we're going to start seeing counter arguments from the Biden folks. Remember, there was a story we talked about the other day in New York Magazine that Bloomberg's campaign is so arrogant, they have taken to calling Biden donors and yelling at them for continuing to fund Joe Biden, saying they're helping Bernie Sanders by doing that. And the reality is from the polling, it looks like Bloomberg is actually helping Sanders, uh, particularly in a place like Texas. He's dragging Joe Biden down out of a, out of a competitive role. Now, that brings us to Mike Bloomberg, who had a, a bit of a faux pas on stage last night. He admitted to buying the House of Representatives. Mayor Bloomberg, please. Let, let's just go on the record. They talk about 40 Democrats. 21 of those were people that I spent $100 million to help elect. <laughs> the, all of the new Democrats that came in and put Nancy Pelosi in charge and gave the Congress the ability to control this president, I, bought, I, I got them. <laughs> I bought, I, I got them. <laughs> Again, a, a Bloomberg on stage last night, he, uh, he, if you want to say he had a good debate performance, it was like coming out of a coma and still being in a hospital bed. That, that was his improvement on the debate stage. And Senator Warren went after him again on the, uh, and listen, I'm going to play this. This is a two and a half minute bit of this debate and a little less than two and a half. And I want to play this for you because it is deeply relevant and shows the extent to which Elizabeth Warren, who I want to talk about next, uh, is going after Bloomberg to stop him, not going after Bernie to stop him. At least I didn't have a boss who said to me, kill it, the way that I Mayor Bloomberg never said that have said okay. to one of oh, his on. pregnant employees. People want a chance that, to hear. And again, the crowd, the crowd People is clearly with Bloomberg. People want a chance to hear Senator, from I, the women who I have never worked. said that. I, I, I and and the for the record, if she respond. was a teacher in New York City, she would never have had that problem. We treated our teachers the right way. And the unions will tell you exactly that. Well, 
Well, Mayor then, Bloomberg, then Senator Warren us, has raised... Let us have the women have an opportunity to speak. The Bloomberg corporations and Mayor Bloomberg himself have been accused of discrimination. They are bound by non-disclosures so that they cannot speak. If he says there is nothing to hide here, then sign a blanket release and let those women speak out right. so that they can tell their no. stories the way I can tell my story without having going to be sued Thank by you. a billionaire. Thank you. Okay. Uh, and again, yes, this is how bad the moderation was. Number of issues discussed tonight, but I want to give uh, the mayor an opportunity to respond because she has raised concerns about women in your workplace. At the last debate, you said some of your female employees might not have liked some of your jokes. Did these women take your jokes wrong, or were you wrong to make the jokes? Probably wrong to make the jokes. I don't remember what they were, so I assume I, if it bothered them, I was wrong, and I apologize. I'm sorry for that. But the, what happened here is we went back 40 years, and we could only find three cases where women said they were uncomfortable. Nobody accused me of doing anything other than just making a comment or two. And what the senator did suggest was that we release these women from the non-disclosure agreement. I did that two days later, and my company has said we will not use non-disclosure agreements ever again. The senator has got it, and I don't know what else she wants us to do. Oh, I'll be We're clear. following exactly what she asked I'll to do. Exactly and the trouble is, enough is never enough for what this... I'm going to start focusing on some of these other things. We just cannot continue to relitigate this every time. But we did what she asked. And uh, thank you. We've probably made the world better because of it. And by my company renouncing using these, we probably changed, hopefully, the corporate landscape all across America. No, if I'm you get sorry, nominated, Mark. we'll be. <laughs> oh. Bernie Sanders is going to be the nominee. He's just going to be with these clowns on the debate stage doing that sort of thing. Sanders is going to be the nominee. It is actually very striking to me how poorly they were able to go after Bernie Sanders last night. Uh, they, they just, they, they didn't have it. And then poor Bloomberg just, I mean, it, Bloomberg is bad on the debate stage. You've said that President Xi Jinping of China is not a dictator and that he is responsive to his constituents and that the U.S. must cooperate with Beijing. How far does that go? Would you allow Chinese firms to build critical U.S. infrastructure? No, I would not. And I think the, the, the Chinese government has not been uh, open. Their press, the freedom of press does not exist there. Uh, they, uh, their human rights record is a and we should make a fuss, which we've been doing, I suppose. But we make no mistake about it. We have to deal with China if we're ever going to solve the climate crisis. We have to deal with them because our economies are inextricably linked. We would be not be able to sell or buy the products that we need. And in terms of whether he's a dictator, he does serve at the behest of the Politburo, uh, of their their group of people. Wait, wait. But uh, there's no question he has wait, wait, an enormous wait, wait. Do you, do you know who picks the Politburo? President Xi of China picks the Politburo. Power. Um, and um, he, but he does play to his constituency. You can negotiate with him. That's exactly what we have to do. Make it seem that it's in his interest and it's in people's interest to do what we want to do. Follow the rules, particularly no stealing of intellectual property. Uh, follow the rules in terms of the trade the, uh, agreements that we have are reciprocal and go equally in both directions. 
<sighs> it, it, it's it's interesting to me that you got Bernie Sanders praises Fidel Castro and the Democrats are outraged by him. By the way, uh, Barack Obama praised Fidel Castro as well. And that's Bernie Sanders response to it is is Obama said many of the same things about Fidel Castro. But it was after the 2012 election when when Obama decided he wanted to open relations with Cuba. He started praising Fidel Castro. Bernie Sanders praising Fidel Castro. Suddenly it's an abominable sin, uh, an abomination among the Democrats right now. But then you got Bloomberg refusing to acknowledge that the president of China is a dictator who handpicked the Politburo that keeps him in power. Uh, that Bloomberg isn't willing to realize this uh, probably actually makes him more dangerous than Bernie. For all the Democrats claiming Trump is an authoritarian, the Democrats sure do love him. I want to take a quick time out to thank a sponsor this week. And I got to tell you, I'm a fan because of what Blue Vine does, being a small business owner. You know, so the radio show, you're listening to my podcast. It is of my morning radio show. You know, I don't even make a salary off this thing. I'm still trying to grow advertisers. And so thanks to Blue Vine for that. But it's a small business. And I've got other people to that I've got to pay on payroll. I've got expenses I've got to meet for satellite and costs uh, for distribution, editing, production, things like that. So I I'm not actually making a salary on any of this stuff. Uh, as a result, I am a small business uh, looking to grow, looking for advertisers, and I understand what it means to reinvest. I also know what it means to need access to capital. And running a business, I mean, it is a challenge. Securing extra cash flow doesn't have to be a challenge. Blue Vine helps you get a line of credit. It's fast, it's easy, it's simple. There are so many headaches in running a business. Uh, you shouldn't have to worry about stuff like that. Blue Vine's actually an easy, fast way to help support your business growth with a line of credit up to $250,000. Whether you need the money to offset upfront costs, secure inventory, pay an unexpected expense, through Blue Vine, you can help yourself and your business stay secure for any reason. There's no fee to set up your line of credit. Blue Vine never charges maintenance or prepayment fees. Applying is very easy. You just go to getbluevine.com slash Eric. For listeners of the Eric Erickson Show, Blue Vine is offering a special limited time promotion, $100 gift card when you take out a loan or open a line of credit with Blue Vine. You go to getbluevine.com slash Eric, E-R-I-C-K, for more details. All you have to do is go to getbluevine.com slash Eric and apply. It's quick, it's easy, it's a meaningful way to help your business in as little as 24 hours. The promotional offer, it's subject to terms and conditions. You can find those at getbluevine.com slash Eric. And thank you to Blue Vine for sponsoring the show. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show. The phone number, you want to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Happy to take your reaction to the Democratic debate last night. My goodness gracious. Let, let's get some of the press reaction out of the way before we move on to other stuff. But a housekeeping note first, uh, what is it, next Wednesday, um, a week from today, Yes, a week from today, I will be at the University of Georgia uh, in Athens uh, talking to the college Republicans there Wednesday evening. Uh, and I have no idea whether it's a public event or not, uh, but I'll be in Athens on Wednesday, uh, a week from today. I guess I need to see about doing my evening show from there so that I can 
uh, scoot over to UGA. I like going up to Athens. I hadn't been there in a while, uh, and I, I need to try to go uh, since I can't get to LSU. And, and, and Athens is a way better college town than Baton Rouge anyway. But nonetheless, uh, I digress. Uh, and and uh, prayers for all of you who are giving up stuff for Lent. Uh, I'm happy to to carry your vices for you for the next 40 days. Those of you who are who are going to go, I, I I don't do the Lenten thing. I'm I grew up Southern Baptist and now I'm in the PCA, so that's not something we do. Now on to the the, the media reaction. They're still upset about Bernie Sanders out there, Rahm Emanuel. You don't need to reinvent the wheel when we know what works. And I think that if uh, you know, I'm not a fan of uh, Senator. I'm personally friendly with Senator Senator Sanders. I'm not a fan of the politics. I think it will lead to uh, an electoral. Uh, defeat when, in fact, the country is looking for an alternative to Donald Trump. They want to vote in a different direction. Yes, they do. Here's Gloria Borger from CNN. There were times when the, there were two people, two candidates talking yeah, just right. repeatedly at the same time. Exactly. And of course, every candidate there uh, was thinking, uh-oh, I, I've got to do well here because this could be yeah. it for me, except for Bernie, maybe. So, so you know what the stakes were. So it's difficult to be a moderator in this, in this case, obviously, but you needed to control it. Yeah. And it was out of control. And as a viewer, uh, I, I yeah, you can't thinking, hear when people are talking. You just can't. No, as <laughs> he talked over there, you get here. And the, I mean, that's it though. That, that is it. Um, the, that the, the Democrats, they couldn't really take the edge off Bernie because they were so busy talking over each other. Uh, here's one of the democratic, uh, consultants on CNN last night. I, I think it was a difficult and chaotic and frustrating debate, which is about where we are in terms of the democratic primary process to begin with. So if you're coming in, it was, it was a decent entry point to the way the contest is, is going at this point. I think if you think CBS intentionally was modeling <laughs> it, to it, was, it was meta. They, they, yes, they were, they were, they were trying to, to mimic the actual feeling of being one of us and, uh, and they did a brilliant job of it, I thought. It was also co-hosted by Twitter, so this does yeah. feel a lot like Twitter. You know what? That makes perfect sense. <laughs> and Van Jones. Um, I was disappointed with Bernie's answer on the socialism question. He had to know that was coming. Uh, there's no reason to do a big retrospective nostalgia scream fest about authoritarian regimes from the 70s. There's, it was an opportunity for Bernie to clarify the American people. That when he says democratic socialism, that's the point. <laughs> it's not that stuff from Cuba. It's not that stuff from the Soviet Union. It's the stuff that you see in, in Northern Europe is working well for normal people, and they vote all the time. He failed to do that. It's unbelievable that he failed to do it. It's what a big chunk of our party needs to hear from him, and he did not do it tonight. Didn't do it tonight, except nobody really came after him. And that's just that is just the reality. Uh, you, you may dislike Bernie Sanders, but I got to think if at this point, if you are a Democrat who wants to stop Sanders, you're you're having a real hard time doing it. And it, it's starting to gain traction. Uh, I did get an email from someone during the break that I didn't mention Tom Steyer and I really didn't or Amy Klobuchar. They didn't have great debate performances. Uh, Steyer, I don't even want to play anything you said from the debate performance. Let me just just play you a little excerpt of this. This is from the CNN did a town hall with Steyer. CNN, to their credits, they've done a good job putting these candidates on stage, doing town halls with them. They try to get Democratic audiences for the Democrats, Republicans for the Republicans. Uh, they're not doing the Republicans this year, obviously, because Donald Trump's the only game in town. Uh, but uh, listen to part of this. 
Uh, let's see. Can I rearrange the audio here? I'm, I'm doing it on the fly. I want to give equal time even to idiots like Steyer. Well, no, see, you're being spared. The The clip does not suddenly want to load uh, of poor old uh, Tom Steyer and his drivel about the environment. And I still have buying a house, getting married, and having kids ahead of me. What do you say to people my age and those who are younger who are frankly terrified of what climate, climate change will do to this planet and our futures? So, Natalie, thank you for asking that question. Look, I am the only person running for president who will say that climate is his or her number one priority. The only one, go ask him, the only one. And I've said that I will declare, just so you know, Natalie, a state of emergency on climate on the first day of my presidency, and I will use the executive emergency powers of the presidency to tell companies how they can generate electricity, what kind of cars they can build on what schedule, what kind of buildings we're going to have, how we're going to use our public lands, how the government, which is the biggest buyer of fossil fuels in the world, is going to move to clean energy. Um, what, what, I'm sorry, there's a, there's a term, gosh, what is it? What, what do you call someone who believes that the government should own the means of production? And and give to those who don't have by taking from those who do. What what what, what do you call that? What, what I, I the term escapes me. But uh, you know the, you know those people they want to control the means of production, um, whatever you call them. That's that's what Tom Steyer is advocating right there. Oh no, we're we're not allowed to use the communist word. No, that they want to assure us that the Democrats aren't communists. It's amazing how they keep moving. You know, the, I, I'm not a big fan of the Overton window stuff. It's like the red pill, blue pill stuff. People who use this crap want to sound smart. They don't really know what they're talking about. Oh, what they're trying to do is move the Overton window, Mr. Erickson. They want to move the Overton window so the Democrats can sound more mainstream. No, they're just telling you who they are. That's all it is. It's not a matter of, oh, if I'm over here and I'm being super radical, we're going to move everybody in our direction. No, you're going to look like an idiot. Look at what's happening with Bernie Sanders. He's been doing this. Where do you think he's moving the Overton window? In the opposite direction. Wow. But one of the things I told you it was going to happen, I told you, 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 I told you it was going to happen, is they are beginning to use the coronavirus. In fact, Jesse Waters uh, on Fox News uh, made the same point, and he's getting lit on fire, as is Rush Limbaugh, for making the same point that the Democrats intend to weaponize the coronavirus against Donald Trump. Yeah, he's going to get whacked for this. If this keeps up and things go south, the Democrats are going to say, coronavirus is this president's Katrina. Or, or remember Ebola during Obama. Ebola. All right, and they're going to politicize it, which, you know, Republicans would never do. <laughs> we don't ever act like that. No. So the only thing he can do is either full travel ban immediately or the rallying cry of made in America and try to galvanize the country against the Chinese threat and try to ride it out until November. But who knows if the stock market tanks? There's a huge sell-off, Dan. I lost $500 million today wow. in the market. I don't know. I might have to I go back to work. I wonder what happened to Bloomberg. Yeah, wonder what ha did happen to Bloomberg with the market sell-off. Uh, by the way, we should check that, shouldn't we? Here at the at the opening of the market, the market hadn't been open that long today. Uh, thus far, we've got uh, the Dow is up two hundred ninety-eight point five points right now, which is a good thing. Um, okay, now the coronavirus 
is starting to cause problems in the market. The Democrats are starting to use it as a political weapon against uh, the president. They are claiming, in fact, that uh, what the president says isn't true. Uh, this is from CNN a short time ago. One things, John Berman one of the things that, one of the talking things the president to said yesterday Anthony Fauci. Is that we're very close to a vaccine. Now, I know this is something you know a lot about. This is your job. Right. How close are we to a vaccine? Are we very close? Well, I mean, the confusion, again, is we're close to starting a phase one trial to determine safety. We're going to do that in about one and a half to two months. But that doesn't mean you have a vaccine. In order to get a vaccine that's practically deployable for people to use, it's going to be at least a year to a year and a half at best. That's Dr. Anthony Fauci. He's the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. He is an expert in this. And that is a lot of confusion because there's actually uh, CNN itself has run stories on uh, various pharmaceutical companies saying they found a vaccine for it. And he's right, actually. They, they've got to do human testing on it and they've got to make sure that it's something that's scalable. Uh, but we're headed in that direction. They are doing, however, a, a the media is a, a blame Donald Trump uh, routine. I want to play this clip from CNBC earlier. This is an interview with Lee Goldman. Lee Goldman is a billionaire hedge fund manager in New York City. I'm sorry. It's Lee Cooperman, Leon Cooperman. Uh, Lee Cooperman is a billionaire hedge fund manager in New York City. He is someone the markets pay attention to. He is someone the Democrats pay attention to. He is someone the Republicans pay attention to. And I want you to listen to what he says he's watching right now. This week's brutal market sell-off has wiped $1.7 trillion in market capitalization from the S&P 500. Joining us right now by phone to try and put this in some perspective is Lee Cooperman. He's Omega Family Office Chairman and CEO. And Lee, we've talked an awful lot about this, the volatility we've seen the last couple of days and the straight down action. Are you a buyer or a seller in the market today? Uh, I'm doing both, but I would say that I'm balanced. I would be a buyer. Uh, I think the significance of an event for the market is a function of what the market was discounting when the event occurred. If you go back, uh, I was on with uh, one of your uh, colleagues, Scott Wapner, on February 18th, and I said the market was knocking on the door of euphoria, that uh, there were lots of issues that were being ignored by the market. I was, I mean, I've lost a lot of money the last few days, don't get me wrong, because I'm an investor. But uh, I would say that to have a strong opinion about the market today, you have to have a strong opinion about two issues. And one is the coronavirus. Uh, does it get under control in a reasonable time frame? And second, that we don't have a socialist or a communist in the White House. Okay. Um, I have no expertise in the coronavirus other than my confidence that mankind will uh, conquer this problem, and I think it will be resolved by June. And again, I want to make it very clear, I have no particular expertise in that regard. Second, Which problem, I don't think, Lee? The, the socialist problem or the no, coronavirus the, 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 the coronavirus. Okay. All right. You don't, okay, the, <laughs> no, the socialist problem, we'll have to see. I, I, I really conquered by June. I, I, I don't think the country is uh, so leftist in its orientation that a Bernie Sanders or an Elizabeth Warren will be elected uh, president, you know. That's, Lee, I mean, this is a guy, the markets, the president, the Democrats, they all listen to this guy. And he's out there saying, whoa, 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 Sanders and Warren, but also coronavirus. And the Democrats, uh, Chuck Schumer, remember, I, I, I pointed this out the other day. On February 2nd, the president ordered air travel suspended with China, and the Democrats said it was an overreaction. 
And now they're saying he's not doing enough. The CDC came out yesterday and said that we will see person to person contact in the United States, that it will spread in the United States. They're beginning to warn schools, churches, uh, organizations that large gatherings of people could cause problems, uh, that the, the infectious disease running amok, uh, running amok could be a problem. They're concerned about that. And you've got the Democrats now capitalizing on it. Uh, they're pointing out that the infectious disease expert who was the coordinator for the White House is gone and has been gone for two years. But, you know, I've talked to a buddy of mine who actually is at the CDC, and he said that's not actually a bad thing. You're hearing this from Democrats, but that certain personnel are gone from the White House who are coordinating. He says, but actually, we've got a secretary of health and human services, and we've got the, the underlying bureaucracy at the CDC. And the secretary of health and human services is the natural coordinator for this, not some guy in the White House and that we should let the experts do it, not the politicians inside the White House, so we get a better response. The the market, however, is going down on this. And we now have word this morning that there is an American soldier in Korea who has contracted the coronavirus. Uh, from person to person contact, our, our first American, um, a, our first American soldier, and if he's contracted, he's probably spread the spread it already. That is a concern of the CDC. I gotta tell you though. I got to tell you, I, I do, we're, we're not hearing outside of China, we're not hearing about mass, mass casualties from the coronavirus. I, I and, and you know, it very much like the flu, the elderly and the young and people with lung ailments are more susceptible than anyone else. But I do wonder uh, how much of this now is panic as opposed to having a rational basis for, you know, the, the flu, for example, is bad every year, but it has become so commonplace. It's not something that everyone dwells on. There is a vaccine for the flu, although a lot of people don't get the vaccine for the flu. And most people who get the flu wind up surviving. And that appears now to be the case with the coronavirus as well, based on what we know. Uh, it may become a seasonal thing. We don't know that if it becomes a seasonal thing, it's something that will be accommodated. Uh, there will be a vaccine ultimately, I think that is developed for it. And, but right now there's so much unknown and there's so much fear about it. It is becoming a political weapon for the Democrats to use against the president of the United States. The president knows this, however, and is responding accordingly, but it's really something, uh, that a virus that broke out in China, is going to become a political instrument of Democrats in the United States to use against the president. But will it actually work when the Democrats are out there trying to undermine and destroy the American pharmaceutical industry, the free market enterprise system in this country that's allowed innovation? Uh, this is an attack that the president, uh, interestingly enough, could probably turn on its head against the Democrats by saying, hey, these people want to wipe out the industry. And that's the industry that's going to save us. The government's not going to save us. It's the American pharmaceutical industry that's going to save us. And the Democrats want to wipe it out. The president's got an argument there. Just a reminder, uh, text ARMY to 33777. There is a Second Amendment legislation in the state Senate here in Georgia. Uh, one, it would allow churches greater flexibility in who can be armed in a church. A lot of churches don't want. So the way the law works now, and I love that the bill, just if you're wondering, it's 357. Just think 357 Magnum. That's the bill. Senate Bill 357 by Bill Heath. Uh, the way it, the current law works in Georgia is churches either have to let everyone carry or let no one carry. 
they really and now most churches don't do that. Most churches have a have a list of people who are authorized to carry, and technically that runs afoul of the law. What Bill Heath of Bremen wants to do is change the law and say churches are allowed to do what most of them are doing right now, which is designate classes of people in the church who can carry. There are a lot of churches who refuse to to go along with the legislation because of the blanket. They, for example, they'd like to have members. The way the law works, you either say everyone can or, or no one can. You can't say members of the church can carry, visitors can't. You can't say the diaconate can carry, the session can't. Uh, you can't say the, the safety committee of the diaconate can, but the rest of the deacons can't you can't do anything like that and and it doesn't apply to schools run by churches there are a lot of churches there are a lot of schools that are run by churches Uh, my church has a school that it runs here in Macon and uh, there's uh, churches and those schools are considered separate under the law and this would allow them together so that the churches could set a, a gun safety protocol for schools and it, it's had a review. It has not advanced out of committee. It's a great piece of legislation because it does allow churches some discretion. So text the word ARMY, please. Uh, the word ARMY, not please, just the word ARMY, A-R-M-Y, to 33777. If you haven't already, you'll get subscribed to the activist list. What happens is you will get a text back asking for your email address. Uh, you send your email address. It'll subscribe you to the activist list. We don't sell the list. Uh, you're not going to get a bunch of advertising. Uh, it is just for when there's an actual alert like this, we want you to be able to contact, make it very easy for you through our activist portal to be able to contact your member of the state state house and state senate and say, hey, uh, SB 357 by Bill Heath, please support it. It's good legislation. Uh, we'll make it really easy for you to do, but you've got to take the first step. I, I can't I can offer you a solution, only you can take it. And the solution is text ARMY to 33777 so we can keep you engaged. Uh, We pay for that out of our pocket. It's not advertising sponsored activism portal. I do it myself. Uh, And, heck, I at some point need to start earning income from the show instead of doing it for free. Uh, if you want to advertise on the program, by the way, let us know, Eric at the resurgent.com. Always happy to have advertisers. If, now that we're across the state, you can get your uh, brand product service, whatever uh, from, from the entire state of Georgia. The phone number here, if you want to call in with your democratic uh, debate thoughts is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. But uh, right when we come back, John Conradi is going to call in and talk to me. Uh, he is working with Senator Chuck Grassley with an outside group. They're advancing a prescription drug reform package. And the issue here is that the uh, Senate Democrats and Republicans have complete competing plans to lower the cost of prescription drug benefits. All right, and one of the issues with the Democratic plan is essentially they will force American drug manufacturers to lower prices, which will, of course, impact the ability of these companies to do research across the board, including on things like the coronavirus. And that's the Democratic plan. Uh, Chuck Grassley has an alternative plan, and I'm trying to get – there are several competing Republican plans. I'm trying to do my job to educate all of you on each of them, and so I've invited them on. And we're going to start with John Conradi on the Chuck Grassley prescription drug plan on how to lower prices in this country without killing the industry that might save our lives. Okay, I I, I just – I got to tell you as a funny moment here, uh, Democrats are attacking Bernie Sanders' wife – for going on Russian television 
and explaining why open primaries uh, allow Democrats or allow Republicans into stop Bernie Sanders and why uh, supposedly that's a good good thing. They're they're Democratic, but what it actually means is that the Republicans come in and steal it from Bernie. Uh, and the Democrats are circulating this. How dare she go on Russian television? The clips from four years ago when they were totally fine with Bernie Sanders going on Russian television. Good gracious. Oh, these people. Okay, if you're on the phones, uh, stand by. I will get to your phone call. I absolutely promise. But right now, uh, John Conradi is joining me uh, with the Campaign for Sustainable Prescription Prices. John, how are you? Good. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so I, I, I have been pitched now on a bunch of competing Republican plans on prescription drugs. And when my buddy Brian reached out to me and asked if I'd have you on, I was like, yes, I would actually like to have on everybody to discuss the, their different plans. Uh, and this one intrigues me because it's a Chuck Grassley plan, and I'm, I'm a huge fan of Chuck. So wanted to get you on here, and, and let's discuss this issue because we saw the Democrats on stage last night essentially want to take over drug companies right as they're researching the coronavirus, and Republicans don't seem to want to take over the drug companies. Yeah, that's exactly right. And there are just so many of these bills that are circulating around in Washington. And one of the things we're really trying to do is say, hey, look, here are the pieces that have crossover in almost all of these bills that are that are part of the grassley widened plan that Republicans and Democrats can get behind that the White House has endorsed. Uh, Secretary Azar just yesterday on Capitol Hill reiterating the White House's support for these solutions. These are the things that we really want folks to focus on and to actually get in the end zone because time is running out, as you know, with political season heating up. Mm-hmm. Well, so what would what are the what are the terms of this uh, plan? Is it, what role would the government have in dealing with setting the prices? Yeah, so there are essentially a few key elements. So one is capping out of pocket costs for seniors. There's pretty widespread agreement that that's something we can do to provide relief for Medicare Part D beneficiaries. Uh, and reforming the Part D program to give big pharma some skin in the game to provide a disincentive against price gouging. So that would mean at a certain phase of coverage that big pharma, not just taxpayers and health plans, would pick up some of the tab. And so that provides them kind of a natural disincentive against price gouging. Uh, These solutions include other things to increase competition, support greater use of things called biosimilars, uh, to increase transparency on how drug companies set prices on their products. And then finally, to say, and this one is the one that's really important because it gets attacked by pharma the most, to say that the federal government won't provide an unlimited subsidy for price hikes and that the that taxpayers will only reimburse the Part D program brand name drug companies uh, for prices that stay bo- for price increases that stay below the rate of inflation. Well, you know, so I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that because one of the, the concerns that I hear a lot from people regarding uh, pharmaceutical pricing and government intervention is the very same thing with uh, the student loan industry, that it has allowed prices of colleges to escalate in this country above the rate of inflation uh, because the government's going to subsidize everything. And there are a lot of people say, well, if the government starts subsidizing drug prices, that's exactly what we're going to see there as well. Absolutely. Especially if you do something like cap out-of-pocket costs for seniors, then drug companies, especially ones who sell a lot of product to Medicare Part D beneficiaries, have every incentive to hike prices to the sun uh, because it'll be taxpayers picking up the tab and not patients. Um, And so that's why it's so important that uh, a solution that caps out-of-pocket costs for seniors is coupled with these solutions to give pharmacists skin in the game and to provide disincentives against unlimited price hikes. 
Now, one of the things that that Democrats very frequently say is that uh, we essentially cover the costs uh, for other countries, that other countries, uh, we should be able to buy from Canada or we should be able to uh, drug reimportation, things like that, except the math just never seems to add up because you've got government taxpayers subsidized prescription drugs in Canada, and they say that, well, we're paying an overinflated price here because... Uh, these other governments demand price controls. They make a very convoluted argument, and I'm probably even making it more convoluted. Uh, but it, it just – where do you draw the line in getting the government involved in this stuff, particularly when other governments are subsidizing so much and demanding control so much that American taxpayers do feel like they're picking up a lot of the higher costs? Well, that's why there's so much more we can do without direct government intervention to start out with that just hasn't been done because the pharmaceutical industry has had so much power in Washington for so long. Things to, to clamp down on how the industry games, things like the patent system. You know, Senator Cornyn from Texas has great legislation to start kind of peeling away at some of these tactics that big pharmaceutical companies use uh, to prevent competition from coming to the market. There are so many things we can do from a competition and transparency standpoint that would help market forces uh, uh, bring prices down and slow the rate of price increases uh, without kind of getting into all of that. Well, yeah, and you know, that that's a great point because we see this across the board where corporations, uh, uh, to some degree, it's easier and cheaper and more efficient for them to pay lobbyists to go to Washington to get loopholes and special protections than to have to innovate anymore. And we see that across the entire uh, Fortune 500 industry happening and, and also within the pharmaceutical industry and people buying up patents and then jacking up prices who never actually invented stuff and causing all sorts of fallout uh, and disrupting free market forces. There's such a good example, and that's Humera, which is the best. Every one of your listeners has probably seen the almost limitless ads that yeah. its, its maker, Abby, runs on television promoting it. But Humera is the best-selling prescription drug in the United States, and its manufacturer has filed 247 patent applications and has over 160 issued patents just on this one drug. And some of these patent applications are for things as silly as changing the pill casing or a pill color. But they are... <laughs> But it's, it's ludicrous. But the way that the patent system is set up because of the influence, the long time entrenchment of the industry uh, and, and their work to keep to keep competition uh, at bay, you, Abby has been able to kind of get away with this and, and extend what's considered a usual period of exclusivity for a truly new invention, which is 20 years to now 39 years with no competition at all in the marketplace for Humera. Wow. So what's the state of play on the legislation within Congress right now? Or is this, is it a proposal or has it actually, has the legislation been written? Yeah. So there was a, Senator Grassley introduced a plan last uh, summer with Senator Wyden, a bipartisan plan that passed out of the uh, Senate finance committee that he's the chairman of an important panel uh, there in Washington with bipartisan support. Uh, It's continuing to gain more support, even in recent weeks, Senators McSally and Ernst have come out and said that they uh, support the plan. Senator Collins at the end of last year said she supports it. Uh, but Grassley is having trouble getting the Senate to act on these bipartisan solutions. And so he's really calling on more Republican lawmakers to come out and get vocal about it. He's asked the White House to do the same, and, and the White House has responded and has had Secretary Azar going out and talking about how important uh, uh, this is, you know, the president in the State of the Union address brought this up and said, get bipartisan legislation to my desk and I'll sign it. Um, but really, we need folks like Senator Loeffler, Senator Perdue to also weigh in 
uh, and say, hey, we got to act uh, on behalf of Georgia patients and get this stuff done. If somebody wants to learn more about uh, the plan, where should they go? Uh, CSRP.org is our website. and We have information there um, on, on some of these bipartisan solutions. Uh, and another thing to, to point out, getting back to uh, the earlier point I made, is some of this stuff is actually in the House Democrats' bill. Obviously, their bill goes way further but there is true bipartisan agreement on some of these underlying key uh, elements that will provide relief for patients. Uh, and if the Senate acts, uh, there's, a, there's a very good chance that House Democrats will play ball um, and get these things in the end zone. <laughs> well, the Democrats in the House never seem to miss an opportunity to push things to extreme these days. <laughs> yeah. Well, look, is good that, luck I to think you. Would be in a, a, I think they'd be in a really tough place, you know, if there was a real chance to get something bipartisan done for patients. Yeah, to, uh, to I, not, I suspect to not do so. It. Listen, John, thank you very much for stopping by. And, and so it's, it's CSRP.org if people want to find more information. Uh, CSRXP. CSRXP. All right. CSR. I'm writing this down. All right. I will send people there. John, thank you very much for bringing us up to speed on this. I appreciate it very much. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. John Conradi, uh, CSRPX.com. He's the spokesperson for the Campaign for Sustainable Prescription Pricing, and it's RX Pricing. Um, and if you want to learn more, go to their website, CSRXP.org. It is Chuck Grassley's legislation with uh, Ron Wyden of Oregon. I believe Mark Meadows in the House also has a plan that Republicans in the House are pushing, uh, and they're trying to pick up support in the Senate for this one. Now, the phone number here, if you want to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Let's go to the phones here. David and Dalton, you're going to be next. Welcome. Hey, good morning. Uh, you know, the last couple of months, you've made some comments on Twitter uh, about Biden and how he's a good man. Most recently, there were some people making fun of him for his comment about he's running for the Senate. It was a faux pas. And you were like, you know, this is He's a good man. Stop making fun of him. My point is, elder is that abuse. Joe Biden is, huh? Yeah, it's elder abuse, Joe, what they're doing to the man. Elder abuse. And then you said he's a good man, and you've said that more than once. He is pro-abortion. Abortion for liberals is not a political viewpoint. It is a way of life. The murder of children in the womb is, not, is a way of life for liberals and progressives. And because if somebody supports that, they are not a good man. This is not about immigration where you can say, well, we just agree to disagree on immigration, but he's still a good man. This is not a political point. This is a way of life. The murder of children in the womb is a way of life, and he supports that. He cannot be a good man by that criteria. Well, look, on the moral level, I understand what you're talking about. But at at the civic discourse level, uh, we in this country have vehement disagreements and whether or not we and I agree with you on abortion. That's why I always refer to it as killing kids as opposed to the euphemistic uh, abortion. Uh, But at the civic level in this country, we should be able to engage with people we disagree with because ultimately we're every single one of us is a sinner. Uh, Joe Biden's a sinner. Joe Joe Biden believes that killing kids is is acceptable, uh, and and that's sinful behavior. Uh, I'm a sinner too, and I'm I'm not going to call when we all fall short of the glory of God. I'm I'm not going to engage and say, well, I'm I'm a better person than him uh, because I got different sins than him, and and mine don't involve killing kids. Yeah, I, I'm totally opposed to abortion. Won't vote for a pro-abortion candidate. 
but that doesn't mean that that in civic discourse and relationships with with other Americans, we should say, well, I can't have a relationship with this sinner uh, because his sin is is really bad compared to mine. I got to be able to have a relationship with him. And in the grand scheme of things, uh, Joe Biden is a person whose company with you would enjoy. Uh, he is a he's a good guy. Uh, his wife is a fine person. I disagree with him vehemently on a host of issues, including moral issues. But to say that that I can't be friends with or consider Joe Biden a good guy because he supports killing kids. Yeah, it's horrible. Absolutely horrible. Uh, can I be a friend then with uh, an atheist who denies the existence of Jesus? Uh, can I be a friend with um, can I can I be a friend with someone who is of a different religion who denies that Jesus is God because that that seems to be the 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 worst thing from a moral perspective is to deny the reality of God uh, and I think at a, at a civic level you've got to be willing to be friends with people with whom you disagree even on things like abortion uh, and and to get upset when I say that Joe Biden's a good guy when I'm talking and you know I, I I've gotten this from a number of people of late that you can't say someone's nice or good someone got mad at me the other day for saying I, I thought Stacey Abrams was a nice person I, I've been around her several times she was always very nice uh, and she's always very nice to other people and and I know enough people who uh, are really terrible to those who don't matter, who people that they're never going to see again. And, and particularly in politics, I see this all the time on the left and the right. People are just nasty to people who who are of no need to them. And I've seen Stacey Abrams interact with people who are of no use to her. And she's very nice to them. She, she strikes me as a nice person. I got lectured the other day. Oh, you can't call her a nice person uh, for the exact same reason, by the way, it was it was abortion and socialism. You can say she's a pleasant person. No, I'm going to say in, in, in the civic vernacular of our age, she's a nice person. Joe Biden's a good person. I disagree with them, uh, but I, I have been in their presence and they it was enjoyable. I've been in the presence of plenty of politicians who it's not pleasurable to be in their presence. They are deeply mean people. They are people with no sense of humor who cannot laugh at themselves and cannot relate to other people. But I'm not going to say that, oh, Joe Biden is a monster because he supports abortion uh, because he's a sinner just like you and me. And I'm not going to say that that my sins are better than his. Therefore, I can't have a relationship with that terrible person because he supports abortion. I know a lot of people who support abortion. They are wrong, and I believe they support the killing of children. But if I decided I wasn't going to have a relationship with people who believe that, uh, half this country would be precluded from my friendship. And how would I ever persuade them that they're wrong if I didn't build a relationship with them? At some point, we've got to be relational to be able to change people's minds. And that means we're able to relate to people and understand their position uh, and they're to be able to understand ours. And I think it's deeply notable, in fact, in this country at this time, uh, that it is more likely for a conservative to consider a progressive a friend than for a progressive to consider a conservative a friend, and I don't think conservatives should go in the direction of having a harder and harder time making friends with progressives because we can never persuade the other side if we don't actually understand what they believe. And conservatives, by and large, tend to have an easier time understanding what a progressive believes because conservatives are more willing to be friends with progressives. It's the progressives in this country have no idea what we believe, and when they go on TV and start talking about abortion, they have no idea how to articulate a pro-life position or what pro-lifers really believe because they don't know any of us. I would much rather be friends with and be nice to and consider people in the civic sense good on the other side and have friendships with them. And who knows, maybe along the way, the Holy Spirit can get involved and save them from themselves and their terrible position. 
but I know that by starting out by saying this person's evil and bad and I can't have anything to do with them because they believe in killing kids, well, in this country, that's 50% of the country, and I'd really like to make inroads with those people and draw them to our side. At the top of the hour, my buddy Chris Burns is going to swing by uh, to talk to us about the markets, uh, big dives in the market on Monday and Tuesday. Right now, 10.55 a.m., the Dow is up 422 points, making up some of the losses from the last two days. Uh, Chris will bring us up to speed on it. Uh, Javi, in Atlanta, or I'm sorry, in Athens, you're going to be next. Welcome. Uh, Hi there. Hey, how's it going? Good, how are you? I'm doing fine. I usually call on Fridays, but today I decided because of the debate. But, uh, you know, just listening to the debate and just, overall politics how it's going and everything you can really tell it's you know and this is for for both left and right it's more than just what we see it's uh it's really spiritual you know ephesians six twelve when paul speaks about you know we don't wrestle against flesh and blood etc but a lot of the issues that the democrats were hitting on yesterday i'm not saying that there's a correct formula to fix them but a lot of it if only we were going if, if we were doing it through the through the Bible, I would say a lot of these issues would be fixed. For instance, poverty. You know, a, a lot of people have a poverty mentality, and you know, I just I just get reminded of the scripture Paul says. You know, I'm a paraphrase. Man don't eat. I mean, man don't work. Man don't eat. Yeah. Gun violence. I mean, think about it. Guns don't. You know, it's old cliche, but guns don't kill people. People kill people. And why are people killing people? Because they have evil in their heart, etc., and you know, and you know, you were just discussing about the uh, pharmacy, drugs, and all that. A lot of it can be traced to the love of money. And what does the Bible say about that? The the love of money is the root of all evil. And it is no coincidence that Jesus said, "You can only have two masters, you know, uh, me or, or Mammon." Right. Well, and and, you know, so there's another issue here. And and listen, thank you for that. I appreciate it. And I'm I'm glad you raised that point with the Democrats. The the fundamental issue here, and this goes to the speech I gave in Colorado this past weekend. The Democrats want the government to be the solution to everything. Uh, There is no room for churches. There is no room for nonprofits. Uh, Everybody's got to rely on the government. In fact, you've got Pete Buttigieg out there now. Listen to this clip from Pete Buttigieg. This is from the CNN town hall. Just to be clear, do you believe that other religious and nonprofit institutions like colleges and homeless charities should lose their federal funding if they refuse to hire or serve LGBTQ people? Yes, if they are discriminating, then they should not be doing it with federal dollars. Okay. So you, we've got to shut down, according to Pete Buttigieg's church-based charities that are helping the federal government if those charities, those faith-based charities, won't hire uh, gay, lesbian, transgender people. We in this country, our First Amendment says uh, that we have a freedom of religion in this country, freedom to exercise our religion, to exercise our religion. By the way, uh, there are a number of members of the Supreme Court who believe that the old case, it was a Scalia decision, actually, that treated uh, freedom uh, exercise uh, as equivalent to freedom of speech issues. And and they want to revisit this, that you've got to be able to live out your faith in life. And, And for Christians, that means maintaining biblical orthodoxy and maintain uh, maintaining their faith and Buttigieg is saying shut them all down punish them uh, there's no room for religion in this country with the Democrats and that's part of their problem 
I want to take a quick time out to thank a sponsor this week. And I got to tell you, I'm a fan because of what Blue Vine does, being a small business owner. You know, so the radio show, you're listening to my podcast. It is of my morning radio show. You know, I don't even make a salary off this thing. I'm still trying to grow advertisers. And so thanks to Blue Vine for that. But it's a small business. And I've got other people to that I've got to pay on payroll. I've got expenses I've got to meet for satellite and costs uh, for distribution, editing, production, things like that. So I I'm not actually making a salary on any of this stuff. Uh, as a result, I am a small business uh, looking to grow, looking for advertisers, and I understand what it means to reinvest. I also know what it means to need access to capital. And running a business, I mean, it is a challenge. Securing extra cash flow doesn't have to be a challenge. Blue Vine helps you get a line of credit. It's fast, it's easy, it's simple. There are so many headaches in running a business. Uh, you shouldn't have to worry about stuff like that. Blue Vine's actually an easy, fast way to help support your business growth with a line of credit up to $250,000, whether you need the money to offset upfront costs, secure inventory, pay an unexpected expense. Through Blue Vine, you can help yourself and your business stay secure for any reason. There's no fee to set up your line of credit. Blue Vine never charges maintenance or prepayment fees. Applying is very easy. You just go to getbluevine.com slash Eric. For listeners of The Eric Erickson Show, Blue Vine is offering a special limited time promotion, a $100 gift card when you take out a loan or open a line of credit with Blue Vine. You go to getbluevine.com slash Eric, E-R-I-C-K, for more details. All you have to do is go to getbluevine.com slash Eric and apply. It's quick, it's easy, it's a meaningful way to help your business in as little as 24 hours. The promotional offer, it's subject to terms and conditions. You can find those at getbluevine.com slash Eric. And thank you to Blue Vine for sponsoring the show. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here across the state of Georgia. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. It is 11.06 a.m. my time. Uh, if you're listening to us in delay, that's where I'm getting this number. The Dow Jones Industrial Average now up 355 points. The NASDAQ up 144 points. The New York Stock Exchange up 179 points. Uh, Apple itself is up eight points today. Uh, yay, as someone who owns some Apple stock, yay. Uh, joining me to talk about all this and, and the market frenzy over the last couple of days from Dynamic Money, Chris Burns is live from New York City. How are you? I'm fantastic. I'm so live that I'm in the back of a cab. So if you hear beeping or cursing, it's not me. And we're good for radio. <laughs> that is quite all right. So uh, what's your take on, on the market dive? You were actually on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange yesterday with Cheddar TV, I saw. I was, and it's been a fascinating few days. So the point that we almost lost 2,000 points in the Dow the first two days of this week, which is the biggest point two-day point loss ever. Um, we always have to remember that as the Dow rises overall, point losses aren't as significant as percentages, but still, that was a, a significant loss. And I would say to people, when you wake up this morning and you see the market up, that's great, and it could continue to go up, but just remember, some of that, too, is a whole lot of people going, wow, there was such a big drop, now's a good time to buy. Mm -hmm. So the underlying economic conditions, the underlying concerns about the coronavirus um, haven't changed at all. We don't have any new information that's transforming the market in some way. Um, we're just all waiting to kind of see what happens with the coronavirus, and that's created a whole lot of uncertainty and anxiety in all of global markets right now. 
Now, if if you're at or near retirement uh, and you're in the stock market, what should you be doing right now? <laughs> Getting yeah, out of the stock market? <laughs> yeah, no, no. Actually, no. Don't waste this week. That is the number one advice because here's the deal. No one knows. The head of the IMF just came out and said there is really no way for us to give any prediction about what this is going to look like or turn into. It could be a global pandemic, as you've seen all these news articles saying, or as Larry Kudlow, the president's chief you know, economic advisor, said yesterday, uh, hey, it's pretty much airtight. We have a lockdown in the U.S. We're going to be fine. All right. So you get these conflicting messages of how bad is this? But here's the key. If you're sitting feeling anxiety or feeling uncertainty and there's tension that comes along with that, don't waste that. And here's what I mean. If this turns out to be just fine, great. If it turns out to be terrible, that's awful. But regardless, don't forget this feeling because we're in the sitting on almost 500 percent growth in the market over the last decade, over the last bull market. Now is a very important time to go not be complacent and go, hey, everything's going to keep being fine because it's already been fine. Now is the time to say, wow, something will come along, whether it's this or something else, and it will impact the market dramatically. Have I changed my risk tolerance to really reflect where I'm at in terms of retirement? So if I'm sitting on 95% equities right now and I'm 65 years old, it's a good reminder. You know, it might be time to tone this back now to a healthy place where when the market does really drop, I don't end up really hurting my retirement chances. Now, I, we, we have seen, and you and I have talked about this, you've had this phenomenal bull market for a long time, and people have been thinking its run has got to be over at some point soon. No one knows when it's going to be. There have been a lot of people more and more nervous about uh, whether or not the bull market is coming to an end. And I do wonder if there's almost a psychological effect of if, if, for example, we are able to dodge the bullet with the coronavirus, people say, oh, well, no, let the good times roll again. And, and, and suddenly you have a, a more resurgent bull market that lulls people back into confidence before the, the correction comes. I mean, I just, what is your sense on this that the bull market can't last forever? Right. It can't. The problem is, and this really is a problem, is that the longer it goes, the more every single event that happens makes us think it's that it's the event, quote unquote, you know, the major thing that's going to drop. And so truly, a few weeks ago, people were freaking out because it was going to be World War Three with Iran. Um, and then a few weeks before that, we weren't going to get the phase one trade deal done with China. And so the market was going to tank. You'll notice the media now, and, and it translates into how we feel because we're watching the media, every single potential you know, significant issue in the market makes us worry that's the one. But here's the problem. Last year, the S&P was up over 30 percent, but we still had five days where it dropped 2 percent at least. And any of those days could have been something that the dominoes fall and the market really, really drops. And so it's important to remember that these are going to come along no matter what all the time. Now, this one's a little more concerning to me just because we have so little reliable information. But the information we have coming out of China is questionable at best. And so we're getting a better feel for it as it spreads around the world. And if it ends up being something that we can't contain, that is concerning for a number of reasons. But no one knows that yet. So the best way to treat this right now is as a reminder 
that something will come along. It could be five years from now, it could be two months from now, or it could be this, and you need to make sure that you're already prepared for it. Even if it means you get maybe lower returns than you would have if the market shoots up, you have the peace of knowing I'm not destroying my retirement when that next recession or drop or bear market hits. So. Well, is that part of the trick of it is is finding how you get peace of mind and, and being willing to say, okay, the market's roaring right now, but I'm going to sleep well at night because I got enough in my retirement fund? Yeah, and it's, and it's really how much risk am I taking? That is the number one issue. It's not take all of my money and go to gold or go to treasuries, which you see people do right now. Um, even though that's attractive, the reason that's attractive is because we long for certainty. And so when we sit in the tension of going, nobody knows. When the head of the IMF comes out and the National Monetary Fund says, hey, we don't have enough information to make any sort of predictions on this, then we're all left just going, I don't know what's going to happen. And so I would like to change that. So I'll make this significant change. And in the short term, I'll feel better. But selling everything you have right now is like selling all your clothes at a garage sale. You're not getting what they're worth. And so the key is really going, can I adjust to a healthy place in the stock market where I'm taking a risk that I know, even in the worst case scenario, isn't going to wreck my retirement? And now I feel confidence and I'm going to stick with that regardless of what the market does today or tomorrow. Well, and full disclosure, for those of you just tuning in, I'm talking to, to Chris Burns from Dynamic Money, who fills in for me as my financial advisor, and, and he wouldn't let me yesterday. I, I proposed cashing out my 401k and buying lottery tickets, and, and he wouldn't let me, uh, it, it, uh, using the said, argument that my was, wife would make be mad at us. I said, if you include me in it, yeah. like a Nicolas Cage, it could happen to you moment, then I'm up for it. I just think your wife might come after both of us. That, 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 that is very true. She would, and, and she, she can be scary at times. Uh, now, uh, I want to ask you, you are in New York City, and my understanding is you will actually make an appearance on Fox Business tonight. Yeah, so I'll be on Kennedy tonight at 9 p.m. I'm sure I'll be hashing all this out, and then actually we'll be on Fox and Friends tomorrow morning at right about 7 a.m., so plenty of chances to talk about all of the excitement. And I think we'll have, again, more information by the end of today, whether this we see kind of a reprieve like we see right now where the market's growing a little bit and we all take a deep breath, or does something turn around in the afternoon, which is what happened yesterday. The market opened up yesterday and then was down significantly by the end of the day. When so the CDC came right out now. and said, look out, pandemic. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, exactly. So it's like, what information do we not have yet that we might have in four hours? Who knows? But the biggest thing for people to know is take a deep breath. Don't focus on going to safety. Focus on going to what is the right risk for me in my situation that I can stick with, not just through the coronavirus, but through whatever else pops up in three weeks. Yeah, well, and, and if the coronavirus spreads, we'll have to start talking about estate planning, too. I, I kid, I kid, I kid. Listen, uh, good luck tonight on, on TV and, and tomorrow morning on Fox and & Friends, and we will see you back here at some point soon. Hey, thanks, Eric. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Chris Burns, Dynamic Money. Uh, the Hour is not sponsored by Dynamic Money, but but they also sponsor the show. Uh, he's a good friend. He literally is my financial advisor. If, if you guys need a financial planner, advisor, someone to help you with family budgeting, uh, totally uh, give Chris a call at Dynamic Money. You can go to dynamicmoney.com 
as a matter of fact, uh, to get more information about dynamic money. And they'll help you with family budgeting. Uh, they will look at all of your finances and your debts and see if they can help you restructure to get out of debt. That's what they did for us. That's how I got to know Chris. Had a bunch of credit card debt. And he was like, you have so much equity in your house. If you did this, you could pay off your credit cards. And, and man, my house payment hasn't even changed. It was great. Um, so they do all that stuff. But primarily, they, they also deal with your uh, retirement. And they are 100% fee-based. They, they do not do a commission. And so they will take a fee if they manage your retirement. Every, everyone does. I think it's 1% or, or 0.99% some such. Uh, but they'll manage your investments if you want. If you don't want, they'll still, for a fee, look over everything and, and work with your investment advisor, your life insurance guy, your mortgage guy, and basically like a primary care physician for your finances. That's what Dynamic Money does. Uh, so dynamicmoney.com is the website. Chris Burns is the guy. And thanks to him for stopping by. You can see him on Kennedy Tonight, Fox & Friends, tomorrow morning at 7 o'clock. Now, he mentioned the uncertainty in the coronavirus, uh, a um, local hospital uh, has is advising its doctors, and someone sent me a um, email from the hospital. Uh, this is what do we know about the coronavirus right now? There has been a a pool of people being studied uh, in Wuhan, forty one patients. And they've been releasing information on these 41 patients. 73% of them were men. The average or the median age was 49. Uh, 32% of them had underlying diseases. 98% of them uh, had uh, fever symptoms. 76% of them had cough. 44% had fatigue. 55% had shallow breathing uh, eight days in. 100% of them wound up having abnormalities in their chest CTs, uh, pneumonia symptoms. Uh, and uh, the fatality rate was 15%, which is higher than SARS, but less than MERS. MERS was the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome uh, that came out a number of years ago. Uh, so the mortality rate, about 15%. Uh, six of the 41 patients, 15% died. The mortality rate was 10% for SARS and 37% for MERS. Now, uh, they say there were no children or adolescents uh, among the 41 people studied, but that's uh, exposure bias has nothing to do with the rate of infections among younger people. Not many had upper respiratory symptoms. Not many people had uh, GI symptoms. And what do we actually know for specific treatment? Not much yet. Uh, the 41 admitted patients received antibiotics uh, and, a, um, and an antiviral medicine uh, because it was also flu season. Corticosteroids were given if severe community-acquired pneumonia was diagnosed. Oxygen was administered as needed. Supportive care measures were administered. In practice, further evidence is needed to determine if systemic corticosteroid treatment is indicated. No antiviral treatments uh, for either SARS or MERS were helpful. And they need ongoing studying of the antiviral medicine. And that's part of the problem here. And that's what has so many people spooked is, as you heard Chris saying on the radio, that we don't actually have a lot of knowledge from China. China has dealt with this overwhelmingly, over 80,000 people infected in China. And we really don't uh, know much about uh, the ultimate effects of this. And there's an article in uh, Axios today, and the headline is, Why We Panic About Coronavirus But Not the Flu. 
if you're freaking out about coronavirus, but you didn't get a flu shot, you've got it backwards. A novel outbreak will always command more attention than a common illness, and the coronavirus is a serious health threat. But our newfound hypervigilance against infections might be more helpful if we could redirect it towards influenza. The new strain of coronavirus has killed 132 people. Uh, now, this is this was from the end of January, so it's now over 2,700 people. Um, and by contrast, this year's flu season has killed 8,200 people in just January and February, 8,200 people have died of the flu and 15 million people have been infected. James Lawler, an infectious disease. Actually, I'm sorry. That's wrong because this, this was, this was written uh, January 29th. So this year's flu season, he's talking about January actually. James Lawler, an infectious disease physician at the University of Nebraska, said pandemic viruses like the coronavirus cause more anxiety because there's not a, a initial countermeasures like vaccines, antivirals, diagnostic testing, diagnostic tests, tests bleh, I can't talk, testing and monitoring systems. And those exist for the flu. The flu is not as new and headline grabbing because we see it every year. But the bottom line is that uh, it's important to remember that if you're concerned about viruses, a lot of deaths every year are preventable. And the flu thus far still seems to be more deadly than the coronavirus. Now, that may change. Uh, the, inflammation, the information we have is still preliminary. The information we have from China still has a lot of stuff that we don't think is very accurate. The Chinese are not being very transparent with any of us on the situation. Uh, the count right now, as of today, though, it's largely, frankly, uh, stable. Other than in South Korea, 1,261 people. China has 78,064, uh, 2,768 deaths, 81,193 uh, infected people. The United States is at 57 right now. Now, why is the United States at 57? Uh, we have uh, 57 confirmed cases because 40 are from the Diamond Princess, three from Wuhan, 12 are travel-related, and two are person-to-person. -person. And this is a, an important point that uh, we still only have two person-to-person -person infections. That being said, though, uh, San Francisco has declared a coronavirus state of emergency on Tuesday. No residents have tested positive for the virus, but three people have been treated for it in city hospitals. There remain thus far only two known person-to-person -person cases of the coronavirus in the United States. Uh, San Francisco, by the way, has a lot of health problems. The coronavirus is not one of them. They do actually have very competent emergency personnel dealing with the issue in San Francisco. Because of the high population of Asians in San Francisco, they were getting ready for it pretty quickly, thinking people would come from China to San Francisco. And so they've been prepared. We'll see if that preparedness lasts for them. I want to read you a little bit of this uh, from National Journal. It just hit the wires uh, from who wrote it? Drew Gerber and Zach Cohen besieged on two fronts in Georgia's Senate special election. Senator Kelly Leffler has ignored the slings and arrows of her critics while she introduces herself to the voters who will determine whether she keeps her seat in November. The National Republican Senatorial Committee, the Club for Growth, and a forthcoming outside group are focusing their fire on Leffler's Republican challenger, Doug Collins. While her allies play offense, 
The senator is free to spend her time and the millions of dollars she's loaned her campaign assuring voters and interest groups of her conservative credentials. I think it's really nice to see a woman take the high road, said Susan Myers, a Republican strategist based in Atlanta. She doesn't need to get in the gutter with men who are used to playing gutter politics. That's really appealing to independent voters and to moderate Republicans. For Leffler, the goal over the coming months before the November 3rd all-party election is to introduce herself. Leffler was appointed by Kemp, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I'm making sure that people know who I am, know my values, know what I'm up here fighting for, Leffler said in a brief interview on Capitol Hill. I'm an outsider to Washington, so I know I have to define myself. According to her campaign, Leffler's message is reaching voters through visits in Bartow County and Macon, sometimes via private jet, an advertising strategy of nearly $4 million, Leffler is sharing her story as a lifelong conservative. She's omnipresent. You can't turn on the TV or computer screen without seeing her on message, said Brian Robinson, founder of Robinson Republic, former aide to Nathan Deal. The limitless bucket of resources is going to have an impact. Robinson, who isn't affiliated with either campaign, said Leffler and Collins both understand that locking down Trump supporters is key. University of Georgia polls said 40% of registered voters weren't familiar with Leffler, the same percentage that said they weren't familiar with Collins. Now, it is a University of Georgia AJC poll, but still. Uh, in any event, uh, she is spending big bucks to make sure people know she's a conservative and it's working. Her name ID is coming up in the state. Uh, spending money helps, but there's a catch when we come back. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson show, the phone number. If you want to call in eight, seven, seven, nine, seven, Eric, eight, seven, seven, nine, seven, three, seven, four, two, five. I, I, I hesitate to say this because I don't mean it critically. And I know people get so hypersensitive when I say stuff like this. Uh, you, you should see too many people have my cell phone number and, and they call and complain. Uh, and, and I don't mean it that way. And, and I want to preface it that way. And I, I mean it lovingly. I was thinking about this last night. So I, in the last segment, I talked about the story in uh, the National Journal, which is essentially the uh, daily political publication that everyone in Washington reads. And it notes that uh, Leffler and Collins are neck and neck on a ballot test. Leffler is now leading Doug Collins among people who consider themselves very conservative or religious conservatives or voters who approve of President Trump. Uh, that uh, the SBA list has now endorsed her. The Club for Growth has endorsed her. The National Republican Congressional or National Republican Senatorial Committee is out to support her. Uh, Sean Hannity, Mike Huckabee, Andy Biggs, the House Freedom Caucus chairman, are uh, supporting Collins. Uh, Leffler's support comes from Kemp, Jeff Duncan, Chris Carr, the Attorney General, Newt Gingrich, uh, myself, it's noted in the article. Uh, her Senate colleagues have coalesced around her. Ten Senate Republicans have donated $72,500 to her. Mitch McConnell has her backing. Uh, Tom Cotton has her backing. Newt Gingrich is going to be out there campaigning for her, among others. And I, I, I'm watching the debate last night with Bloomberg, and I'm thinking, here is a billionaire who can't buy charisma and personality. I'm talking Bloomberg, not Leffler. Bloomberg, Mike Bloomberg, can spend $500 million on an ad campaign and several hundred million dollars on his campaign and a and million dollars on debate coaching, and you can't buy him charisma and personality. I'm sorry, but I listen to Mike Bloomberg on stage, and I think, can someone who sounds like that get elected president? Um short and with that very much New York accent, I don't know that that is going to play well in 
Peoria and Des Moines. You've said that President Xi Jinping of China is not a dictator and that he is responsive to his constituents and that the U.S. must cooperate with Beijing. How far does that go? Would you allow Chinese firms to build critical U.S. infrastructure? No, I would not. And I think the the Chinese government has not been uh, open. Their press, the freedom of press does not exist there. Uh, uh, Their human rights record is abominable. And we should make a fuss, which we've been doing, I suppose. But we make no mistake about it. We have to deal with China if we're ever going to solve the climate crisis. We have to deal with them because our economies are inextricably linked. We would be not be able to sell or buy the products that we need. And in terms of whether he's a dictator, he does serve at the behest of the Politburo, uh, of their their group of people, (laughs) their group of people who are handpicked by him, by the way. Um, do you really wanted to listen to, do you really want to listen to him on the campaign trail? And that, that's one of the things that comes down to you. You can buy your way onto a debate stage. You can buy votes, you can buy ads, but you can't buy charisma and personality. And I bring that up because it is a general consensus and I'm not talking on a turn. It is a general consensus that while Leffler's ad campaign introduced her overwhelmingly to the public in Georgia, uh, her personality came across as uh, stiff and that she doesn't come across as comfortable in her ads to the extent that some of the ads now uh, have voiceovers of, of, a, of a clearly Southern male voice talking about Kelly Leffler and all she's accomplished and all she's going to do and what a conservative hero she is. And that's fine. That's the way to do it. If I was her campaign consultant, I would advise doing that. But I would also advise trying to find a way for her to be comfortable. Uh, for her to, to come out of her shell. Because it seems with Bloomberg... It doesn't strike me as Bloomberg has a shell to come out of because he's a jerk to begin with. I mean, he just comes across as unpleasant and angry at all times. Leffler comes across as hyper shy and and uh, un, um, overwhelmed right now and trying to get her comfortable and trying to get her relaxed and trying to get her back in her own words that don't sound stiff is something they're going to have to do. But again, uh, no amount of money can really buy that. You can get some good people to help. Uh, When I was, and I mentioned this before, when I was a campaign consultant, it's one of the things I had to do with a couple of clients, one in particular, uh, who was very, very stiff on the campaign trail, did not like, was great one-on-one, an incredible politician one-on-one but did not come across well in front of a crowd. Uh, Jeb Bush, you know, Jeb Bush is actually, if you ever watch his interactions one-on-one with people on the campaign trail, or Mitt Romney even, they are incredible retail politicians one-on-one with individuals, but on a stage, in a commercial, uh, in front of a large group, they're kind of stiff. They've gotten better over the years, and that's something the Leffler folks have to be mindful of, and I know they are, and I know they're working on it. That, that's to some degree why they're limiting her availability right now is, is they're spending all their time working on that, and they've got to, and that's wise, that's smart, it's what they need to do, uh, but it is also something that it, it, it strikes me when I think of Bloomberg, that Bloomberg thinks now he can come on stage and kind of command it because he's Mike Bloomberg, he's the mayor, and and he can do this, and he can just say what he wants because he was the mayor of New York. I, I do have to tell you, he 
tried to claim that that he gained his leadership ability standing on the rubble of 9-11, which is just, it is a infuriating line. Uh, the New York Press Corps, I'm told uh, by a reporter from the AJC, that the, the New York Press Corps uh, groaned, audibly groaned, when Bloomberg made that line. And that's going to be problematic. And then you all just, the debate itself it was a mess. Here's Nora O'Donnell with one good line against Bernie Sanders last night. Senator Sanders, the cost of your agenda. Yesterday, you released information about how you will pay for your major proposals, but not all of your details are clear. You proposed more than $50 trillion in new spending. You've said Medicare for all will cost $30 trillion. But you can only explain how you'll pay for just about half of that. Can you do the math for the rest of us? How many hours do you have? Two. <laughs> the that's, answer that's is the problem. No, no. Senator Sanders. Uh, that, that's repeat. Yeah, it, it, basically asking Sanders if he can do the math. Uh, that scored probably more points on Sanders than Mike Bloomberg tried to score on on Sanders. Uh, Buttigieg, again, as I mentioned in the first hour, he had the strongest points against Sanders, but the whole thing was too chaotic for anyone to really be able to get a handle. The whole thing was too chaotic for anyone to really be able to engage uh, and take on Sanders because the moderator, I, I, I don't even want to play any more clips of the debate because it was so chaotic. It's going to give us all a panic attack listening to everyone yell over the moderators and yell over each other and, and hog for time and raise their hands. I thought it was very funny. Pete Buttigieg kept his hand in the air half the night and they wouldn't call on him. And finally, he's like, I guess I'm going to have to talk over the old geezers to get my point to go after Bernie Sanders. It just, it, it was something. Um, I, I I don't want to stick on this. Uh, I, I do want to tell you that there is a story out, uh, also in National Journal, but I've seen it elsewhere as well, in National Review and, and others. The Democrats have decided to declare Georgia a battleground state for 2020, and Texas as well. The Democrats believe they can pour money into Texas and Georgia. And you know what that means? You're about to start getting a lot more calls and mail. If you, by the way, if you want to be a participant in poll, polling, uh, my buddy Logan Dobson has made this point before. The most powerful people on planet Earth are the people who have their cell phone number in their voter registration file because you are the people who will get the polls. If you want to become a powerful, influential influencer in American life, go update your voter registration file at your local county office and put your cell phone number with it. And you'll start getting polling calls. You will. Because uh, I get polling calls and, and I can't actually take the polls because one of the, the disqualifying questions they ask is, are you a member of the media? And technically, as much as I hate to admit that I am, I technically am. Uh, and they don't want to talk to me. It's like when the Nielsen folks call and they say, are, are, are you in broadcast? And like, yeah, I can't talk to you. Got to hang up now. Um, the, the Nielsen folks, you're not allowed to talk. I actually had a Nielsen person show up at our door and I had to explain to him. It's like, dude, I can't talk to you at all. Uh, Nielsen's, they do the ratings for TV and radio, you know, Nielsen families. They used to be just TV and now they do TV and radio. It's like, I can't talk to you. Get it, get it, get off my porch. <laughs> Poor people. He was flustered too. He wanted names of people. It's like, dude, I cannot do that. Go away. <laughs> In any event, um, the 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 this entire thing is is just it's it's farcical that the Democrats now think that they're going to pour money into Texas and Georgia. And here's the thing: let me go back to the Buttigieg clip here. 
I, so I said I didn't want to play any more debate audio. I do need to play this, play this, because he makes a point. Again, this goes to the Texas-Georgia issue uh, that we need to understand, because the Democrats, the, the establishment Democrats at the in the upper echelons of the Democratic Party, they understand this, and it's the base voters in the Democratic Party. It hasn't seemed to occur to them yet. It was 30, then it was 17. It's an incredible shrinking price tag. Uh, at some point, has said is it, it is unknowable to even see what the price tag would be. Now there are new numbers going. I'll tell you exactly what it adds up to. It adds up to four more years of Donald Trump, Kevin McCarthy as Speaker of the House, and the inability to get the Senate into Democratic hands. The time has come for us to stop acting like the presidency is the only office that matters. Not only is this a way to get Donald Trump reelected, we got a House to worry about. We got a Senate to worry about. And this is this is really important. Look, Hello. if you want to keep the House the in Democratic Brothers. hands, you might want to check with the people who actually turned the House blue. 40 Democrats who are not running you on your platform. They are running away from your platform as fast as they possibly can. I w- yeah, listen, uh, Lucy McBath in Georgia's 6th Congressional District, uh, she's one of the people Mike Bloomberg bought. Uh, she is endorsing Mike Bloomberg. Yeah, oh, 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 don't, don't, no, don't boo me on that. This is Mike Bloomberg himself. Air Bloomberg, please. Let, let's just go on the record. They talk about 40 Democrats. 21 of those were people that I spent $100 million to help elect. <laughs> the, all of the new Democrats that came in and put Nancy Pelosi in charge and gave the Congress the ability to control this president, I bought, I, I got them. I, I, I bought, uh, I, I got them. I bought them. That's what he wanted to say. He bought them. Lucy McBath here in Georgia as well. And she's going for him, of course, because he gave her money. Uh, Stacey Abrams has defended him. He's given her group $5 million. Uh, you've got this around the country where these Democrats who are in these swing districts are beside themselves at the thought of Bernie Sanders uh, being the nominee. Why? Because suburban voters, given the choice between their 401k being wiped out in communism or being sustained by a guy they don't like are going to go with the guy they don't like to protect their 401k. Stuff like that matters. And Buttigieg was right to call it out. The problem is you've got this growing movement of progressivism within the Democratic Party that doesn't care. They want the purity. Bring on the purity standards. Wipe out the Democrats, uh, burn them, burn the heretics who don't want to advance uh, the Green New Deal and and, uh, socialism across the country. And they're willing to do it. They are willing to do it. And the establishment Democrats, the the upper echelons of the party, they realize it. And the best they can do is like David Axelrod last night after the show, say after the debate, saying, eh, he's not really a socialist. He's actually a commie, David. Um, The Democrats are going to have trouble keeping the House of Representatives. And you know, I, I mentioned this the other day, Fred Upton, he's the the geriatric blue hair Republican congressman from Michigan who was set to retire. And he was retiring because there's no reason to stay because Nancy Pelosi is going to be speaker. And now Fred Upton to say, wait, wait, you know what? I think I'm actually going to stick around and see what happens as Bernie Sanders becomes the Democratic nominee. They know, they know, and there's nothing they can do to stop him at this point. Yesterday was Mardi Gras, Fat Tuesday, um, the the day of debauchery <laughs> around the world. Uh, and today is Ash Wednesday. Uh, people going, particularly Catholics, uh, going to Mass today. Uh, they will have a, a cross uh, finger painted on their forehead by a priest who takes the 
palm branches from Palm Sunday the year before. Uh, they burned them to get the ash for uh, Ash Wednesday, typically. This is the start of Lent, uh, Lenten period, a 40-day period. Uh, why why do this? And, and increasingly, a lot of denominations do this uh, that, that don't have traditions of Lent, uh, but have embraced it in, in a world where so many Christians now mirror the world around them. Why do Lent? Well, in the very early church... I mean, the real early church, the the first 200 years after the death, 300 years after the death of Christ, uh, before the Roman Empire and Constantine made it safe to be a Christian in the empire. You know, Christianity uh, did not actually become the formal religion of the Roman Empire for for well after Constantine, but Constantine it became a Christian, and so a lot of people just by nature did. They wanted access to the emperor, so they converted. Uh, but uh, there was a—the early church decided that— you were going to probably die or at least be severely persecuted if you became a Christian as it began to spread through the Roman Empire. And they needed to come up with a way to teach people what it would actually mean for them to be a Christian. This was before there was a compiled Bible. They had the letters circulated throughout the Roman Empire to the early church. Uh, the tradator, You know where we get the word uh, traitor from? It's from the word tradator. The, some early Christians would trade their scripture for their lives to the Roman emperor. Uh, they would burn the scripture. These were the, the days circulated around. Uh, the, the letters from the apostles before a bound Bible had been formed. Uh, they had copies of the gospels. They had copies of the letters of James and Jude and Peter and John and Paul. And uh, the Romans would come hunting for them, and some would trade it in and to be burned uh, to save their lives for free from persecution, and they were called the traditors. We get the word traitor from there. Well, because of all of this, the early Christians under Roman persecution decided they needed a 40-day period in the run-up to Easter to teach people what it would mean to be a uh, Christian. And the reason 40 days, well, Jesus wandered in the wilderness for 40 days. Uh, Noah and his family were on the ark for 40 days. 40 days made sense. And so for 40 days, uh, those who were thinking of becoming Christians would go through a rigorous uh, education within the early church of what it meant to be a Christian, what they would suffer by being a Christian, but what they would gain by being a Christian. And on Easter Sunday, there would be lots of baptisms throughout the Roman Empire. Uh, After the Constantine made it acceptable to be a Christian and he himself converted, there was a huge conversion and no one was going to be persecuted anymore for being a Christian. And there were people who had devoted themselves to the idea of persecution. You know, Ignatius, one of the early Christian fathers, wrote about uh, the, the essentially his pride of being persecuted, that, that it was a good thing to be persecuted. We should all want to be persecuted. It, it meant that, that we really were Christians. And nowadays, I, I've got a, a friend of mine who had a seminary professor who said, if you've never been persecuted, you might not be a Christian. And there's some truth to that, but, but not in the way of the Roman Empire. Well, once everyone was a Christian, there was no reason for anyone to, to worry about persecution. And how do you actually tell you're a Christian? And that led to the rise of monasticism, people who would give up everything and go join a convent or an abbey and go live in the wilderness uh, as a monk. Uh, um, comes Monk comes from the Greek monos, one. They would go live by themselves, solitary existences, to prove that even though they weren't being persecuted anymore, they would lead difficult lives to glorify God. Uh, The Catholic Church, the early church after persecution, decided to keep the 40-day tradition. 
And as it spread across Europe, it adopted the name Lent. It became a springtime thing in the run-up to Christmas, or in the run-up to Easter, sorry, uh, where you would still spend giving up something, just as Jesus in the wilderness uh, gave up things uh, as he wandered in the wilderness and was tempted and tried. Uh, you as a Christian would, in those 40 days, give things up um, and, and work on your faith and spend time in prayer and fasting and meditation, uh, echoing like Jesus, uh, echoing your the life of Jesus. So it all comes from that 40-day period in the early Roman Empire where the early church decided to educate Christians in a pagan empire who would probably die for conversion, what exactly they would gain and what exactly they would give up. Now, I want to tell you this. Uh, I always, always, always do a Good Friday show on my uh, radio program in Atlanta, and this will be my first Easter doing this show, and I intend to do a Good Friday show here. Now, what does that mean? Well, uh, we've got 40 days to prepare uh, and get ready for it, uh, a little less than that, actually. And it is a time for us to look at uh, what Good Friday means in the larger expanse of our life. Uh, and we will do that in Good Friday. What I'd like to do is put on an open call for churches. Uh, if you are in Georgia, you got a church, you do good music, and you want me to listen to it and see if I can weave it into the show uh, for Good Friday, let me know. You can drop us a line, eric at theresurgent.com. Uh, and I will just as, listen, I try not to be too religious on this program. I am an evangelical, but it's more of a political news show. Uh, but there will be topics uh, that we weave in over the next few weeks as we think about these and the run-up to the most important anniversary of the most important weekend in human history. And even atheist scholars agree it is the most important weekend in human history. <laughs>